Oh, it's a, is it real radio or internet radio? Andrew Keen is the author of the infamous 2007 screed Cult of the Amateur. And while he's still obviously a hater of internet content, he's got his eye on a new target. In the March issue of Wired UK, he takes on the cult of sharing. On the internet now, every new business is really driven by social principles. With each new newsflash about Groupon and Twitter and Facebook and Foursquare, with the development of social television, social commerce, social productivity, it became clearer and clearer to me that we were in the grip of a new kind of mania. I'm not sure whether we want to call it the social moment or the, the social epoch or whatever else, but it is new. It is fundamentally new. Uh, it represents the shift from a, a Google-centric internet defined by a network of data to a Facebook-centric internet defined by a network of people. And more and more people are coming to that realization that something very profound is happening, something very profound is changing. Uh, so I'm not alone in understanding this. I think where I may be more alone is my critique. I think many people embrace it. There are what I would call social ideologists, particularly in Silicon Valley, who argue that we are by nature social animals, but I don't think we are. And of course, uh, when they argue that, they're also self-interested because the more they can convince us we're social, the more money they make. But there are many other people who are promoting this idea of the social and see in the internet the solution to many of the traditional problems, particularly in America, with, a, with, with its obsession with community um, and collectivity and the crisis of individualism and loneliness and alienation and all those other things. I don't think these people are bad. I think they mean well. Um, but I think they're wrong. I think they misunderstand the nature of man. I think they're wrong to argue that we are by nature social beings. I think the, the problem is, is that we're not really understanding what we're getting involved with here. We're slipping and sliding into something that, it, that, that no one's really architecting. There's no evil person at the heart of this. Mark Zuckerberg is a child. Um, very rich child, but I don't think he's an evil person. Uh, most of the people who are promoting and developing geo-tagging services and geolocation services, they're not evil either. But when you add Facebook and Twitter to geolocation and to social gaming and to social television and to social commerce, and given that we're increasingly living on the network, the more this social revolution progresses, the more inevitably, like it or not, we're revealing ourselves to the world. So it's this slippery slope into something that it's not going back to East Germany or the Stasi, it's not 1984, it's not Brave New World, it's something different. Um, we are collectively embracing the idea of the social without really quite understanding where it's going to lead. So in your essay, which is clearly an outline for what's going to be your next book, you bring up the specter of the panopticon, 
the prison that the philosopher Jeremy Bentham designed in 1785, a prison that enabled constant surveillance. So are you saying that by sharing, we're creating a prison for ourselves? I use Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon in my narrative, partially because it's a, a very striking, sexy idea, um, partly because I think it's relevant, not because we are recreating the Panopticon, but because firstly, we've reached the decisive moment in the digital revolution in the same way as I think the Panopticon represented a kind of decisive moment in the evolution of the industrial revolution. Secondly, though, I think it's worth noting that the Panopticon wasn't invented by an evil man. Bentham was a good man, a social reformer. He meant well for humanity. Uh, he wasn't the Stasi. He wasn't an East German secret policeman. He wasn't evil. He didn't get pleasure out of humiliating people. He believed that surveillance would improve the human condition. He believed that surveillance uh, uh, would, would, would result in a world in which we were more efficient and happier. Uh, I think Zuckerberg really says the same thing. Uh, there's a very strong streak of utilitarianism in Zuckerberg. And the social utopians are also saying the same thing. They're not suggesting we recreate the Panopticon. But their idea of utility isn't that different from Bentham. Now, I'm not a Luddite. Um, and I'm not a technological determinist. I don't believe that we can't control the technology we've invented. Uh, and in fact, I think when we look back at the 19th century, when we look back at the Industrial Revolution, we would see a similar moment in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, the Industrial Revolution was changing everything, and the Industrial Revolution was, in a sense, inevitable. But not everything about it was inevitable. It needed to be controlled, and the consequences on individual freedom, on privacy, on secrecy were immense. And so you had a series of 19th century thinkers, John Stuart Mill, uh, a number of Americans, uh, Louis Brandeis, uh, uh, who, who defended the right of the individual to privacy and secrecy in the industrial age. And we have to do the same in the digital age. It doesn't mean we have to trash our computers. It doesn't mean we have to turn off the internet. I'm not in favor of that, even if we could and we can't. The challenge we have is retaining our humanity. And I think much of our humanity is predicated on secrecy and privacy. Maintaining that privacy and secrecy, that essential humanness in the digital age. And the purpose of my book is to warn the human race, everyone who's listening, the millions of people who are listening to this wonderful radio station. <laughs> uh, I'm warning you, don't fall in love with this thing because it's going to result in an awful ending. It's going to make you all very unhappy. Maintain your privacy and your secrecy. Cherish that. Do not fall in love with the idea of transparency because it's a bad woman and will lead to heartbreak and deep unhappiness. There's your Facebook, okay. there's your LinkedIn, there's your Twitter. Oh, man. There's your MySpace. Oh, no. I thought I deleted it. Nope. 
And this is even in the cache. Oh, man. Do you see what this is? There's embarrassing photos with scantily clad women. <laughs> Very sexy. Two, I see two ladies dressed as nurses. One of them is maybe trying to lick your face. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing you got the nurses because you're one sick dude. I thought this is all gone. Okay. You're so easy to find stuff. <laughs> this is like a piece of cake. Ada Calhoun isn't exactly a private eye. She's a writer. But when her self-taught internet sleuthing skills caught the attention of her bosses at the New York City tabloid she worked at, they put her to work. I kind of became a sort of go-to person to find things out about people on the internet. And I discovered how easy it is to get a lot of information very quickly about pretty much anybody, even people you wouldn't necessarily think were online. You know, I was in the newsroom when the Times Square bombing happened. And I was on the MySpace page of his brother-in-law. Up popped this beautiful picture of the Times Square Bomber's wedding, captioned, my sis and bro-in-law. That was a huge get for us. And did you end up using that photo? We did, and then it was actually in the Times two days later and on CNN and everywhere else. It feels a little creepy going through people's photo albums. Mm. One other example is um, I was told to find out anything I could about the porn star Capri Anderson who was found hiding in Charlie Sheen's bathroom because he found this, you know, drug-fueled rage. So I found, you know, various aliases. She has, like, a lot of different porn sites with different names, and then I found her real name. Um, and then I was going through all of her family's pages, her, you know, pictures of her father, um, pictures of her cousins, things like that. Um, and then I started finding all these photos of her as she was growing up, um, pe things people had posted. And again, they'd taken steps not to expose her identity. She was not tagged in the pictures. I just recognized her because I knew what she looked like. Um, but again, untagged. So you could never find her unless you know all her family's names. And, you, like, and one person, it just takes one person who you know who doesn't have their photo set to private or who has their photos set to private but posts one on their wall, which lets you circumvent the privacy rules of Facebook. Ada Calhoun recently wrote an essay about her sleuthing experiences for Salon. And while she says we can't really do anything about the unflattering photos our friends and family are posting, there are some things we can do. Right now, find an online photo of yourself that you like and give it this title. Media, please use this photo if I'm hit by a bus. After I started the job, very quickly, I got my, you know, if I get hit by a bus picture in line and publicly available, and then I deleted all my friends that I didn't know on Facebook. I was like, because, you know, for a while I was just like, oh, sure, whatever, like, maybe they read my book, maybe, but I, I don't care. No, you know, why, why would it matter? But actually, it's like you kind of, you know, if somebody's coming in there and looking like, oh, they're friends with this person, like, it does reflect on you in this way. Um, and I, there are certain people that I wouldn't necessarily want a reporter calling, you know, after my demise to, for information about me. So I deleted them all. Um, I deleted comments off my page. Again, like, you know, maybe you want to delete the sexy nurses, that picture and the comments attached to it. Um, maybe try to get people to post things about, like, work with orphans that you've done, you know? Um, something that's a little more flattering. Yeah, but, you know, I actually have a friend who was sadly hit by a car mm -hmm. in Manhattan last year, and pictures of her ended up all over you know, she was in the New York Times and everything. And I couldn't help but wondering, like, is that really the picture she would want people to use? Mm-hmm. Well, because I think they just kind of grabbed it off of Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, deleting anything you definitely don't want out there is first line of defense. As more and more of our lives get shared and lived online, though, the delete button isn't really an option. And what are you going to do if you lose control of your online self? What are you going to do when your digital self starts running amok? 
when the New Jersey college student Tyler Clemente discovered his roommate had filmed him making out with another boy and posted it online, he decided to delete himself. Ada Calhoun was working in the newsroom when this story broke, and she believes it's a warning for all of us. What made that story so sad to me, I think, was like he even went online after he was, um, you know, filmed by his, allegedly filmed by his roommate. He went online and asked what he should do about it. Like he went in this um, gay chat room that he was part of and said, what do I do? And he got pretty good advice, you know, overall. Talk to the RA, talk to the school, get a transfer, all these kind of things. Um, And I think he tried to do it and it just didn't really work out. And um, so he posted on Facebook, sorry, jumping off the George Washington Bridge. And then he did it. And I think for like for him, he seemed to invest have invested so much of his life online. I mean, just judging from like mm. what I talked to friends about, like he was living a lot of his life online. He actually had been going online since he was like in fifth grade. And he was in message boards constantly. He was very chatty, very funny. And he, you know, he started, I think he must have been like 13 or something, asking about his pet hermit crabs and talking about them and, you know, asking advice on like Yahoo Answers or something. Um, and he used the same username for, you know, 10 years or however long. Um, and I think as soon as the internet betrayed him in the way that it did, which was pretty savage, I think it, I think it seemed like the end of the world. I think when you invest so much of your life into the internet and into how you're portrayed and into your relationships, you're sort of like, you know, quasi-real relationships online, eventually you realize that they're not real and that actually you don't really know these people and they don't really know you. And the information that's out there can change in a second. Um, You can spend all this time building up, you know, these huge photo galleries of pictures of you, you know, having this wonderful time or whatever it is that you want people to see. And the second somebody posts something that captures people's imagination more than what you've put up, um, that's going to be the story. That's it. That's it forever. There's now a generation that's grown up completely online. Academics like to call this generation digital natives. Kids who were born right around the time that pretty much everyone got an email address. So kids who had really grown up in the internet age and didn't really know anything different. The interesting thing to me is that these kids are right now, the the kids who are sort of the first real digital natives are at the age where they're starting to have romantic entanglements and young love. Alex Morris is a writer for New York Magazine, and for her recent essay, They Know What Boys Want, she spent a few months hanging out with teenage girls to learn what it's like to sexually awaken in the digital age. So when I was 12, I got, I guess I got what I would call my first real boyfriend and that we went on semi-dates where our parents would like drive us to the movies, <laughs> drop us off, let us watch like a PG movie together alone and then pick us up, in, you know, an hour and 45 minutes later and take us home. And this was considered a date and you would be in the theater and you'd hold hands and you might smooch and it was all very exciting. Um and in terms of, you know, what's happening now, one of the girls I talked to who was 12 had a boyfriend who was in her grade at school, and she said that she really didn't talk to him in real life, that she got very nervous around him and was uncomfortable with that. 
and that really where and, and so I was like well then how are, are you, do you go on dates or how, how do you say you're dating and she was like well we date over I am and she said that that was great for her because it's so much easier for her to to express herself if she's not having to do so face to face it's like it's easier for them yeah in terms of how the internet kind of takes away that awkward fumbling of young love but um I do think that a lot of these girls felt like the guys were more sort of brash online than they would ever, ever have the nerve to be face-to-face. And also, and, and this is not just with them saying, send naked photographs, you know, do this th- thing with me that I saw online, which is was certainly happening. But it also was when it came to them being honest about what the relationship was and there was a sense among the, the girls that guys could you know very quickly over I am jot off like I love you and it wasn't really it, it's not really clear if they mean it when it's coming over the internet and a lot of the girls told me oh a guy would never say that to your face but they'll write it to you or they'll you know um so there is a sense that the guys are I don't, you know, in some cases I think it's true. They, the, the guys mean it when they say it, and the girls believe that, or the ones I talk to believe that as well. But they also have a sense that it's very easy to just sort of say what you think someone wants to hear when you're just typing it over I am, you know? Now, teenage girls have always had to deal with the veracity of I love you notes, like since the beginning of time. But what Alex Morris says is different now is what these girls are expected to do in order to get any online validation. I ran into some sixth graders who were very agitated. There were three of them. Because another girl that they had been friends with, and she had sort of been cut out because of this, had um, been sending topless pictures around to the boys at school. The girls that I met were very upset about this because they felt pretty much betrayed by this girl um, in that they understood that that was against the rules, that you're not supposed to send around pictures like that. And they felt that in doing so, this girl had Put her, put sort of put herself at, a, at an advantage over them with the guys. You know, they mentioned how now, oh, now all the girls are gonna hate her, but all the boys are gonna love her. She's getting all the attention from the guys now. If she cries, all the guys rush over and they're like, oh, what's wrong? What's wrong? I mean, they had a real sense that this affected her, um, her standing with the boys in their grade, and um, they understand. If you put something out there, it can spread, it can get beyond your control. It is not a good idea. But there is pressure to be doing these things that they understand are dangerous. They know that the stakes are raised. I think that they are disappointed that they can't that the you know, they can't sort of feel like they're easing into things, that it's you know, there's such graphic imagery. The boys have become so immune to so many things that in order to um to to get attention they I think they do feel like they're potentially going to have to do things that they are uncomfortable with. 
this goes without saying, but it, it is sort of sad that we live in a culture where girls need to feel that kind of validation at all. Um, and hopefully, you know, you, you obviously want girls to recognize and want other types of validation as well. Um, but I do think it's important at that age to feel like you are appealing. Um, I think to say otherwise would be to just lie. Um, I think it's probably important at most ages, <laughs> but certainly, certainly at that time when you're just sort of awakening to your sexuality. And so if I were 12 or 13 years old right now, I think that I would feel very pressured to put sexy pictures online. Maybe not pictures that expose anything, but I think that there would be a great pressure to do that in the same way that when I was growing up, there was pressure to like wear a push-up bra. <laughs> you know, um, I and I and since I did that. I <laughs> I think I, it's safe to say that I would feel pressured to to put my sexuality online in some capacity. I, I think I think pretty much everyone feels pressure to do that now. I would say in history, you know, you had uh, all this discussion about the soul and the body and the language. And in our secular world, we have forgotten about the soul, but we have recreated maybe an electronic soul. <laughs> Dieter Bigo is one of the scientific coordinators of the European Project for Liberty and Security. He's trying to work out the big problem of balancing security, surveillance and privacy on an international scale. He also spends a lot of time thinking about our digital selves. He calls them our data doubles. People don't realize that when they give their data, the data between the different bureaucracy, what I call the data double, is not them. It's piece of information which have been frozen. They are perfect information, very precise. But one day, 25 years ago, plus one day, 12 years old, plus one day, and they are fried together as if it was you. But it's not. Of course, it's part of you. The details are precise. The overall picture is completely wrong. So that's the first element about your data double, is a concentration about you, but it's not you. To give an example, you are born before uh, the independence of many uh, states in the south of, uh, of the Mediterranean. And so you were uh, the son of the daughter of a colonial occupation. Now it says that you are born in Beirut. And because you are born in Beirut, you will be put on the same category that other people who, are, who have bo been born in Beirut. The logic has nothing to do with you, your life. It will be with a certain category of danger, or even not danger. It could be dangerous people, but it could be just people undesirable. This data double, is part of a category of other data double. 
and very often through the logic of profiling, you are aggregated with others. So my idea is that the data double has his own life, his own travel. He's mixing with people you have no, never met. For example, you have your data double travel nearby another data double on, uh, on, on the plane. But what if this other guy, uh, this other data double, uh, is associated himself with, uh, wrongly, with a terrorist name? You are associated with him. So this logic of association is completely uh, transformed by uh, who is traveling with whom. The point of the story is that it, if you travel, for example, uh, the data double is like your guardian angel. He is sent before you, and if he is clean, you're clean. But if he's not clean, you're not clean. So you're blocked at the border, not because of, about your own life, but about the travel of your data double in a database where you don't have any form of control. More important also, very often, the data double is the truth about you. And so when you try to explain, I am who I am, and you speak, what is the relation to the bureaucracy? They don't believe you. They look at the data double. They look at your body. And they connect your fingerprints with your data double. And if you try to have a narrative about your own identity, it doesn't matter. So your data double is more real for the bureaucracy than you are. So... We can imagine a, a, a world, uh, it could be a, like a science fiction world, where they are so obsessed with your data doubles and they forget you. Maybe if you have traveled to London Heathrow Airport, Terminal 5, you will see that you, they look at you once for the camera. And after, you, they don't look at you at all. They only look at your paper. Try once to just change the paper with another, uh, with your wife, or and you will see that they don't look at you. They only look if the paper is okay. So it's an obsession about the paper, the registration, and the biometrics, and your own life is unimportant. It's absolutely central that people realize that this exchange of data through bureaucracy, through their data doubles, is affecting their lives, but in a way they cannot control. interesting to take this genre, the gadget blog, and, and do something great with it, and do something really individual and, and, and very different. A couple of months ago, writer Matthew Battles got an email from the publisher of the gadget blog Gearfuse, 
out of the blue, basically offering to pay him to do what he likes to do and what he's good at, write smart and interesting things about technology and culture. So he pitched me basically a job where I would be the editor and lead writer at Gearfuse. He said, you know, we've been, we've been working as a kind of uh, content mill gadget blog for a long time, where we write these short items about, about uh, sort of goofy uh, tech gadgets of one kind or another, and rely on search engine optimization to get, uh, to get a lot of traffic. And I'd like to take the site in a different direction. Um, and so I'm, I'm coming to you uh, because I'd like the site to be professional. I'd like its content to be richer. I'd like it to be more in the vein of, of, of a Wired or, or an Atlantic Monthly technology channel. So I said yes and uh, jumped in immediately. I would write eight or nine posts a day. And those posts uh, uh, covered a, a kind of spectrum of what Gearfuse had from the start said was its brief science, technology, and culture. What my take on, on, on technology is, and, and I'm not I'm not utterly unique in this by any means, but but my sensibility is a kind of historical one as well as anthropological. I'm interested in looking at the way in which we engage with with changes in technology uh, and 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 how what we're experiencing now is both similar from and departs from uh, things that that people have experienced in the past. I'm also interested in a kind of um, uh, a, a, a kind of uh, associative, free associative, um, kind of uh, loosely psychoanalytic approach to uh, to gadgets, and what what is it that we want these things to do, and and what is it that we think we're doing, uh, and what is it that we're actually doing with them when when we try using them? What kind of kind of buried dreams and and hopes? What kind of utopian fantasies uh, do our gadgets reveal about us? Um, you know, everybody kind of understands that. Uh, any kind of tool is, is like an extension of our senses or our, our body. Um, and they're, they're, they're extensions of our psyches as well. So an interest in the kind of psychic manifestations of, of, of the technium, of the technological realm. You know, I was trying overall to kind of, to kind of you know, b- build something that was uh, greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, sort of build a, a, a kind of coherent vision out of all of these kind of renegade uh, fantasies of, of, of science and technology, uh, trying to build something that was kind of like a, a you know, uh, a symphony of, of different perspectives of different experiences of science and technology. Uh, Bruce Sterling uh, writes about blogging that it's, it's not about the writing, it's about the blogging. And what he means is that you build over time, uh, if, if, if a blog is to work as a kind of intellectual and creative venture, you build over time a kind of um, you know, resonating uh, experience. That, that, and that's what readers come for. Uh, rather than coming for a kind of individual posts, um, they're 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 tuning into a channel. They want to hear a certain frequency and, and a certain kind of. They want to taste a certain kind of flavor. And so, for me, you know, creating that palette was 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 what was the, the creative excitement of of working on Gearfuse. Of course, this business deal turned out to be too good to be true. Matthew Battles didn't even get the six months the publisher had promised him. So after about two months. Uh, I got an email from the publisher. Uh, this was really totally out of the blue. Um, that uh, he he tells me he's he's lost an ad deal uh, that he had counted on to make the next few months viable, 
uh, at Gearfuse, and he was going to have to shut me down. Um, effective immediately, actually. And that was sort of it, full stop. Uh, I mean, he was, he was, he was nice. Uh, he was complimentary of the work that I'd done and expressed his desire to go forward, his wish that he could go forward with it, but said that it wouldn't be possible to do any longer. Um, and, and so I wrote back and said, you know, that's, that is terrible news. Uh, it's a real problem for me. And it, it was a problem not only because I, was, uh, uh, because I was relying on the money, but because, you know, I'd really begun to get into the rhythm and get into the work. Uh, so a lot of plans immediately went up in smoke. Um, and, and so the end game, and I wrote a short post saying, this is my last post at Gearfuse. Uh, I've enjoyed my time here. Uh, I'm not sure what happens next for the site. I haven't been told, uh, but uh, but I hope things continue well. Something like that. It was a very short post, uh, mentioning none of my my disappointment, um, uh, casting no no blame or or for that matter, not making any explanation for for what had happened. And the publisher then uh, uh, followed that uh, later that night with a post of his own, um, in which he basically said that um, it, it was a lot of fun to watch what, what Matthew was doing here, but it didn't, it didn't work. Uh, his, his titles were too long uh, and too often had, you know, Sart quotes in them. Uh, this was a charge that he made. Uh, uh, and and the, the traffic was, was, was failing to, to keep up with what I needed. He called my approach too highbrow, uh, and 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 then said, you know, you readers, you you need your tech ids scratched. That was that's that's a quote from from that post. Uh, you, you know, you basically saying you haven't been well served by by this this highbrow take on on technology, and I want to give you the the kind of the kind of brain candy that that I know you really want. Um, and so, you know, in that, in that post, he basically blamed whatever failure took place on me. When I read that post, I was absolutely shocked. I read it on Saturday morning and I was about to go out, uh, with, with my, with my family. And I, I, I mean, I just, I felt like I was going to pass out. I felt like here, here he is basically painting a target on me. Um, uh, I mean, I'm somebody who's trying to make my living doing this kind of work and for a post to be out there, you know, Googleable and accessible by any prospective editor or employer that's basically saying this guy kills traffic. I felt like, I felt like a target had been painted on me. I see this profile this girl has uploaded and she's like, I'm going to be in Chicago for um, a couple of nights and, um, you know, want to go to bed with someone. <laughs> and she like looks hot and I'm like, what the hell? I've never done anything like this before. So I message her and, um, and, uh, she messages me back and like, I end up meeting her, um, at the bar in the hotel and we go up and, um, yeah. So where did you find this woman? on OkCupid. Ah, okay, continue. So I, I say to her, um, you, you know, it's, it's weird because this is, this is simultaneously the most intimate experience you'll have and the least intimate experience you'll have. And, uh, and she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you know, obviously like we're never gonna see each other again, 
And so that's not that intimate. But at the same time, she's like completely not a part of my normal uh, life, my day-to-day life. Like we have no mutual friends, just nothing in common. And so I can tell her anything, you know? And she can tell me anything and it, it, won't, it won't affect her in the least. And she says, well, it's funny you mention that because I have a secret that I haven't told anyone else. And I, and I, I asked her if I could record it. <laughs> so she, has, she doesn't know you and she has a secret. She knows that I work in radio or I do like radio stuff. So she, she knows you're more than just like some podcaster. Yes. So she let you record this secret. Yeah. Well, yeah what, 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 what was it? Well, I, you have to tune into my radio show. <laughs> what do you mean? You're not going to tell me? No, of course not. This is this is radio gold, man. Good God. So is this is what your life is like now? You you just hook up with random people on OKCupid to to, to do work? Um, no, no, that was that was sort of a unique circumstance. <laughs> the rest of them have been sort of more traditional dates, I guess. Uh huh. And are you doing this a lot? Yeah. Like how often? Um, I don't know. Last week I went on five different dates. So you decided to bang like all of Chicago in your spare time now, Nick? Yes. And what is so great about OKCupid compared to like screwme.com? So, for, for example, when I first started, um, this girl, well, I guess scrolling through different profiles of different people, she, um, she like basically like favorited me. And when you do that, it sends the other person a message. So I get an email that says, uh, like, so-and-so has favorited you. This is just like primates in a freaking schoolyard. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's actually... It's kind of nice because it's like you um, you can immediately get rid of just like a lot of people who would not be good potential partners, you know? If you go up to someone at a bar, you don't know anything about them, you know? You don't know like what's... Yeah, but I've never gone up to a girl at a bar and said, hey, I just favorited you. <laughs> You'll get an email when you go to the bathroom. <laughs> anyway, so I, I go to this, this girl's profile... She's really cute. I mean, she seems super wild. Um, her makeup is like all crazy, weird, um, like all over her face. Um, she's like clearly some sort of art, arty type person. And I'm like, okay, you know, I think I get a good read for this girl. So I, I message her and I, I say, like no, like no introductions, like nothing. And and keep in mind, like she's already express an interest in me. She's seen my profile. She thinks I'm cool or whatever, or potentially cool. And I message her and I go, let's do something dangerous. And, and she goes immediately, it's like, absolutely. What do you have in mind? And I'm like, I didn't didn't think this far through. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, uh, well, I just, I just passed by this like abandoned factory. Uh, in, in Chicago and it's like these crazy big silos and everything and uh, and this this had happened like the night before so I'm like let's go break into this abandoned building together and she's like okay great and I'm like cool I'll send you more details later 
and then I sign off and I just disappear. So I'm like playing it super cool, right? Oh yeah, super cool. <laughs> First thing that came to my mind. So so the weird thing is like the night before I had met this girl at a bar and had given her my number. Like an actual girl at an actual bar. Yeah, like flesh and blood. Like you didn't favor her. No, I I I like went up to her. She was with a group and sat down, chatted with her, and then I had to run off, just like handed my number, right? Um, and Erica, the, her, I'm not gonna use her real name. Kathy. Uh, and Ka- and no, I don't like the name. Amy has texted me and is like, hey, let's hang out. Um, so that night I go to this dinner party where Amy's gonna be at and I show up before her. It's like a sort of a big party or whatever it was. You know. And I see, um, I see an acquaintance of mine this girl, Rachel, um, who's like a friend of a friend who we've met a couple times before. And so I say hi. I mean, she's like the only person I know at this party. So I sit down and we're chatting. And she's like, um, so I hear that you that you met Amy. And I was like, yeah. And um, and she's like, yeah, that's, that's my roommate. You know, she's been talking about like this cute guy who hit on her. Um, and I'm like, oh, that's crazy. Like... They're roommates, you know, whatever. So, so then I start like getting a little bit more information about her, like getting a little bit of background, so I can go into it, you know, prepared. And so we're hanging out, we're chatting, and um, and this other girl walks into the room, and she she obviously knows this girl Rachel, and like waves at her and comes over and sits down with us. And Rachel's like, "Oh, hey, um, this is my this is my friend Liz. This is my roommate." My other roommate, you know, she's she's pretty hot, and I introduce myself, and and um, and she goes, actually, we've we've already met. And the moment she said that, I was like, oh man, you are the girl from OK Cupid that I was going to break into the abandoned building with the next day. Oh, good God! And and then as like, I mean, like everything's like sort of going in slow motion now, and I'm like kind of working this out in my brain and I look over at Rachel and I can sort of see the gears sort of turning in her her mind and just as I like figure out what's going on then Amy walks into the room and she sits down and then it's just like super awkward and I think I didn't really know what else to say so I just go I I turn to, to Rachel and go do you have any other roommates who I can hit on and, and Rachel laughs, and the other two girls don't really realize what's going on. And so they don't laugh. You know, what's... what's Is that we- your phone? Yeah, I'm going to turn it off. Is that an Android noise? It's it's one of the noise the Android makes. What was that a sign of? That was a sign that I have an email. Like from OkCupid? <laughs> yes. No, seriously, do you do, do you use your phone to work with OkCupid? There, there is an Android app for OkCupid. And you use it? But I'm, I'm trying to quit because it's just getting really distracting because I'm getting a message like every day with a girl who wants to hang out with me.
The following program is presented by its producer through the facilities of Manhattan Cable Television in accordance with government regulations. We are not responsible for the content of this program and its transmission does not imply our approval. Long before people started sharing their most intimate secrets and desires on the internet, there was something called local cable public access television. And this is where anything and everything could happen. These public access personalities or these public access um, um, stars, if you may, just really, really expressed their true feelings and what they wanted to express over the media, over the media that couldn't be expressed on, main, on, on mainstream TV. In 1979, a nine-year-old Joel Gutenberg discovered the Manhattan Public Access Channel on his cable set, and he was instantly hooked. YouTube couldn't really capture seeing this live on TV, people really expressing their emotions or expressing their feelings. And it can go beyond, uh, be it um, uh, humor, it can be, um, uh, or politics, it could be uh, sex or, 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 or real pornography. Just actually seeing it on your TV just really captured the, a full essence, a full flair of it, of you actually experiencing it in, in it actually live in person or about as close as you could experience it to you doing it yourself. I met Joel Gutenberg at the Museum of the Moving Image last weekend. We were both there to check out TV Party, a new exhibition celebrating the storied and colorful history of New York City public access television. Oh, yeah! For the next two well, weeks, the museum will be screening archival footage featuring many of the folks who transfixed viewers like young Joel Gutenberg. Hi, welcome to the Scott and Gary Show. As you can see from the hearts, this is our Valentine's Day show, so we have one of the most romantic bands in New York City with us, the Beastie Boys. You can see segments from the Scott and Gary show, Coco Crystals, If I Can't Dance, Then You Can Keep Your Revolution. Thank you. Here I am tonight, January 5th, 1983, and I've got a special show. And the live show. For you. The program is guest curated by Nicholas Rapold and Leah Cherner. She told me that even though these shows are decades old, they still retain their vibrancy and relevance. There's something really appealing about those, about watching recordings of those old live shows, even though it's like they were never meant to be seen again, but they're still just really fascinating because there's something about them that feels less dated than watching like a sitcom from 1982. Opening night was billed as a reunion and after the screening, many of the stars took the stage. William Hohauser from The Volk Show, Lisa Yap, and Michael Concepcion was there, wearing his full-body Rapid Tea Rabbit costume. I was very excited to meet Jaime Davidovich, who is still active in the video art scene today. But he didn't like my YouTube comparison, because, as he sees it, not just anyone could do public access TV. To do a public access show, um no matter how raw the show is, how primitive it is, it has to have some type of preparation because it's a 30-minute show. So even if you have no talent and you have a big ego and you go there and you prove yourself, you still have to be in front of a camera 30 minutes. And in YouTube, is you can do it a baby, smile, a baby crying for 20 seconds and could be... A, a big hit. Who's the in the shades? Is that Chris a lot of work goes into this. And I used to get um, very sensitive when people said, oh, that was terrible. That was, that was a waste of time. I can't believe you're doing that or spending your money. I had a vision that that's what I like to do. 
Basically, I wanted to do a show that I would like to watch. Scott Lewis was the host of The Scott and Gary Show, and like Jaime Davidovich, he put a lot of work into his live show. Lewis did live comedy, and he hosted bands like the Butthole Surfers and Half Japanese. And while MTV was cool with ripping off his set design for remote control, they wouldn't even give him a PA job. He told me real TV just couldn't understand public access at all. I met at a wedding a guy who was a producer, director for CBS, and um, told him about my show. He said, oh, I'd love to see it. So I go up to his office, great studio, great, I mean, great office, have my tapes, and as we were you know, playing these tapes, including Stevie Moore and all these other cool bands, he said to me after this, this is what we can do. We'll package your show as the worst bands in America. And I'm like, no, 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 these aren't the worst. And, and this, I'm seriously, I'm sitting there, and guys look at me, well, package this as the worst bands in America. Great idea for a show. I'm like, no, that's not a great idea for a show. That's not my show. You know, I don't think you quite understand. These are actually pretty cool bands, and people do like it. 20 years later, it seems that some folks still don't get it. George Stoney is considered one of the grandfathers of public access television, and he was also in attendance. But when he took the stage, he railed at the curators, accusing them of celebrating the absolute worst of public access. I asked him afterwards why he was so angry. The, the, the kind of trivial, uh, tasteless material that we saw tonight... Uh, I'm not saying that people don't have the right to waste their time. Uh, they, they have a right to make themselves ridiculous. But, uh, but I, that's not what I'm fighting for. It seemed like you were a little upset. Uh, and I, at first I thought it was because you were sitting next to a man in a rabbit suit. But it seemed like you were angry about something else. No. Uh, the person in the rabbit suit represents the kind of triviality that this panel represented. As I say, what what was missing for you tonight? All the community programs, all the things that caused people to to, uh, not only watch television, but get something from it. Welcome to the Wild Record Collection with me, your host, Snuffles! That's right, it's the show. It's really sad that George Stoney is so angry about the show at the Museum of the Moving Image because a lot of the material being celebrated is material which has gone to inspire other citizens to take up the tools of production and make their own TV, which is the whole point of this community affair. This is what I learned from Tony Arena and Ron Grunwald, who hosts The Wild Record Party, a program that's still airing on public access. If you've never seen this program before, you need to go to YouTube immediately and check it out. That's right, it's the show where we like to show you record covers like so and play you cuts from those records like so and have an awful lot of fun like so (laughs) and dance around a lot. I love doing it. It's my artistic outlet. I'm, you know, I have a speech and drama degree, and I don't do any of that anymore at all. And it kind of lets me um, let off a little bit of steam through the character of Snuffles, who's much nicer than I am. He's very, he's very much like me, but he's much, much nicer. Can I ask him something real quick? Can I? I can. You can. Um, 
watching any of the, the lot of thank you watching a lot of this stuff tonight did you feel uh, connected to that that like you guys were like sort of carrying on a torch of like this kind of fun uh, uh, or or not even I don't want to put words in your mouth did you feel like connected to like some of this older stuff you saw today oh absolutely we really really do a lot of it was about music that you saw and about freedom and expressing yourself and having a really really good time and that's what we, we really like and in fact we told um, Rapid T Rabbit that he was one of our biggest influences and he really really was we used to watch that show and said how nutty how crazy and how and it really looks like a lot of work goes into it and um We'd like to be able to do that sometime. And we did! This episode of Too Much Information is called Free to Behave Like a Fool or a Machine. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Laura Mayer. It featured Andrew Keene, Ada Calhoun, Alex Morris, Dieter Bigo, Matthew Battles, Nick Vanderkolk, and everyone I spoke to at the Public Access Show at the Museum of the Moving Image. There's more information on the WFMU playlist page at WFMU.org, and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. <laughs>